My name is Sam and this is PhDs for Dummies. Hi there, glad you're listening. Uh, today we're going to dive into the world of nutrition and health claims. And we're going to do this with Eli de Boer, who is an assistant professor at Maastricht University at campus in Venlo. Uh, her research focuses mainly on the intersections of nutrition and food law. And consequently, she's the go-to person for assessing the validity of any health claims you have. Um, I know deep down you guys do not want experts to judge your food novel health claims, but do not worry, Ally still respects yours and the ones that your great-grandmother gave you. Um, so without further ado, um, enjoy listening. Hello, Ali. Uh, um, thank you so much for joining the show from, um, well, the beautiful city of Venlo. Um, can you maybe tell us a bit about yourself? How did you end up uh, researching the intersections of uh, nutrition and law? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for the invitation, of course. Um, well, as you said, my name is Ali, uh, Ali de Boer, and I'm an assistant professor at Maastricht University, and specifically, indeed, at the UM campus in Venlo. Um, so I'm located there right now as well. Um, and, well, I started studying uh, nutrition in my bachelor's in 2007, uh, and I realized quite quickly that even though I was very interested in how nutrition works, uh, and gaining insights into what nutrition does to you and, and why it works like that. The lab wasn't my place to be. <laughs> uh, I realized that during my bachelor's, you know, I did a lot of practical work and I, I realized that I wasn't too motivated to, to really investigate nutrition in the lab. And I thought really that research was about standing in a lab. Um, mm -hmm. And then I started looking for another type of master program because I realized I was very interested in nutrition, but I wanted to link it to, for example, uh, working in a company or consumer sciences or something like that. And I ended up doing my master's in Venlo already. Um, it was offered by Maastricht University and it was a relatively new master's where you would focus on nutritional sciences, but really in an interdisciplinary way. And that's where I ran into actually food law and legislation and I, I realized that I became so curious about how it worked and why it worked like that and why it was organized like that um, and I was very fortunate to be able to uh, work in my master thesis on that, uh, continue that in a PhD and now I'm assistant professor and I like if you would have told me this a few years ago I would have probably laughed um, because I really thought that I wouldn't end up in research but I, I love what I'm doing. So that's how I ended up here. I mean, that's very, very unique in a sense, right? Because yeah. you kind of took this different avenue instead of going into like the sciencey route more yeah. uh, more or less. You took more of like the, the social science or at least this uh, this intersection. Yes, um, definitely. And um, you mentioned that you also wrote, wrote a PhD uh, um, on this, this, yeah. this subject. Um, can you maybe uh, elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, sure. Um, I did my PhD, I defended my PhD in the end of 2015, and it was a multidisciplinary project between uh, the toxicology department and so at the Faculty of Health, uh, Medicine and Life Sciences, and the Faculty of uh, Law, more specifically mm -hmm. international and European law. So I had supervisors from both uh, departments, 
Um, so it was really an interdisciplinary project to focus on um, nutrition and to focus on understanding how the effects of nutrition are translated in legislation. Um, and yeah. for that, I looked at uh, specifically how do we organize everything around health claims. So the statements that you find on, on food labels that say something about how good it is for you or how healthy a product would be. There was, uh, when I started doing my PhD, there was recently a new development in EU law on that. So there was a new law made um, and a new list of approved health claims was authorized. And that kind of got a lot of attention in the field of nutrition because a lot of people felt that at that moment um, there were so many claims denied and people didn't really understand why it was denied. So it seemed that at that moment that nutritional sciences and law didn't understand each other. And that so it was not it was like it was not like a coherent story in that sense. No, uh, or it seemed from the outlook it seemed not uh, incoherent yeah. or it, there were so many opinions also and I really really tried to understand okay what's going on and why do all these people have these opinions are they are they valid opinions and should the legislation change or what are the different ideas out there and why are people apparently so yeah how should I say that so flabbergasted by how this this law has now come into practice how what well, it I think, means into practice well i think isn't like the nutrition's like kind of unique in the sense that um because most research is kind of completely outside of like the normal world or like normal citizens or what have you mm -hmm. um people don't really like spend much attention to it to research i would say um but in nutrition it's different right because it's like something everyone uses every yeah. day and everyone has an opinion about it yeah and i think uh, i think that's exactly the the interesting point and the difficult point probably because it's like you say everyone has a has a an idea and opinion about nutrition because you know we all eat and uh, mm -hmm. You probably also eat like three to six times a day. And if you're, for, for example, ill and your grandmother told you, oh, but you really become more <laughs> healthy uh, when you have the flu, when you eat my chicken soup, you probably have that association with it, right? So yeah, yeah, for you, yeah. that chicken soup may actually be very healthy uh, at that moment, or at least in your perspe uh, perception. And yeah, that's so difficult to really, um, really distinguish those, the more the more scientific facts from the from the um, more, how do you say that? The myths, more, like myths or whatever. Yeah, it's maybe not myths. It's also perception, right? So it's That's really right, yeah, what yeah. you experience yourself and, and how you feel about that. So it's a challenging field, I think. Yeah, definitely. And how then, um, uh, more precisely in your, PhD, in your PhD or in your dissertation, yeah. um, you looked at the uh, the interaction between nutrition and medicines, yeah. right? So then in effect and law. Yeah. Um, and as I said, like for nutrition laws, I can see how maybe uh, uh, these laws are well, lacking behind with the, 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 the de facto situation, but aren't like medicines already subjected to extensive testing periods and laws and, and, and mm -hmm. what have you? Yeah, well, that's an interesting thing because I think um, we indeed started and I'm talking about we, and that's, of course, them, because I, I wasn't born at that moment. In the, in the <laughs> 1950s, or around that, um, people started to regulate medicinal products more extensively because of their safety. Mm -hmm. But where, what I was interested in, and to try and look for parallels, but also differences between how we regulate these things, because we consume a lot of products for, for the benefits they would give us, uh, and we have moved from using nutrition really to um, to not be uh, hungry anymore and to just get enough 
towards more using it for maintaining health. And yeah, exactly. Even in some cases to try and prevent becoming ill. And that's really a shift in how we've used nutrition from like immediately after the Second World War to, to now. And I was really interested in, in trying to identify whether there were any parallels with how we regulate medicinal products that we also consume for the benefits they should get us. Um, but of course, we, we allow a certain risk for these products because we know you could do better probably without the medication, but you need to take it. And that's why there's a risk-benefit uh, assessment for that. So, so you weigh the risk against the benefits, and if the benefits are higher than that, it's acceptable. But for nutrition, yeah. it, it works a bit different. So I was really intrigued in trying to understand how we deal with products that sometimes are even quite similar. You can use garlic in, in a medicinal product, but it can also be considered a food. Um, mm -hmm. And I was really intrigued in how, did, how do we organize that? How do we organize um, the scientific requirements, especially, that underlie all these authorization processes? Why are you allowed to say something about a, a food product and why about a medicinal product and why not? And to really try and look at that from a comprehensive perspective. So really try to look at not just, oh, this is nutrition versus this is medicines, but really to understand how the different fields affect each other. Yeah, and how they like interrelate that yeah, in a sense. Yeah, right? exactly. And and what were your findings then from your your research? Yeah, well, that there's a lot to do. <laughs> that's, that's okay. Let me be like your your top three findings. Oh or yeah, whatever, well, like the, the... <clears throat> uh, I think I think one of the main things I ran into is that um, there's this this strict difference between medicinal products and food products and legislation. But if you mm -hmm. look at science, if you look at um, research into the field there may not be such a black and white difference. Uh, like I said, the example of garlic is, I think, a beautiful example because it, it may, be depend on, may be depending on the dose um, of how much garlic you actually use, whether you assume it's medicine or a food product, but it's also really about how you communicate about that. Maybe that's the second most important finding from my thesis is that even though for legislators and for the law it's a very clear difference between when something is a food versus when something is a medicinal product that difference is not only difficult for scientists or is not only a challenging difference for scientists but also for consumers and food business operators so even though it's maybe a beautiful definition in practice it's not always that easy so yeah, i think those are the main findings Fair enough. Uh, to tie into that, like um, uh, I read in your thesis, like you make uh, uh, claims on that um, these broad definitions or like the interpret how people interpret uh, certain words or producers um, interpret certain words such as health, um, mm -hmm. make it very hard to enforce or assess um, whether or not the product, uh, whether or not like a producer can make valid health claims for a product. Is that like like illustrative for the difficulties of working in 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 well these intersections of hard sciences and social sciences, so to say? Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult question, I think, because um, there are some underlying issues there. Indeed, on one hand, it's, it's the multidisciplinary perspective on my research that I don't just focus on as a nutritional scientist on measuring biomarkers and say, okay, so this is... This is healthy. Yeah, this is healthy or this is unhealthy. I really look at it, indeed, from the more social sciences perspective to say, okay, why do we say this is healthy or not? But at the mm -hmm. same time, there's this debate in research ongoing about what is now actually health. And that has to do with the fact that 
the, the definition of what is health has been coined, I think, in 1946. I think yeah. it was written down in 1948, but we still use that definition. Now, that's quite a static definition of that you should be mentally, physically, and socially healthy. But, well, you know... It's if, probably very outdated, no? Yeah, <laughs> you know, how, how realistic is that? How many of us are actually healthy if you, if you look at that um, yeah. definition? And we now see a shift, and I think that shift has been ongoing for the last, well, 15, maybe 20 years in research to say, okay, maybe health is not that static thing. But we should look more into uh, whether we can define health as, well, they nicely say it, the ability to adapt or reflexivity. So that you can more easily recover from a stress factor and that would make you more healthy versus if you're less well able to recover from a stress factor. But that requires quite a shift in, in mindset of researchers. It requires a shift in um, what things to measure and how to set up your experiments. So it will take time to, to make that real transition. And at the same time, we still try to make sure that there's laws and regulations that protect consumers from false and misleading claims. And so we, we use scientific evidence for that that has been produced already quite a while ago. So that yeah. shift is maybe a, quite challenging to make in current legislation or how we currently use scientific evidence in legislation. Exactly. I mean, the whole framework for, yeah. for working with this definition has been, exactly well, as, as you said, set up from the 1940s then. Yeah. So then it's very hard, I assume, to, to kind of change this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's, so that's something I think is very interesting to see. And of course, I look at it from this, from this interdisciplinary perspective, but I think this is something that also people in the, well, in the more, hard sciences in the life sciences themselves experience that we mm -hmm. need to think really, really a lot about how do we test things and why do we test things the way yeah. we test them. I was thinking about it because when you were just talking about this, um, I thought um, we, I meant, uh, we already mentioned that um, well, nutrition is maybe different from other um, research, that it's <clears throat> well more involved with, with other people. Do you also think that um, well, trends in, in everyday life, so just whatever, like health trends or people start to sport more, that this influences the, your research field? Because I can feel or at least I can see how it maybe could. Like yeah. pressure from the outside to to maybe change this definition of health, right? Because I feel like there's a lot of attention for mental health. And um, do you think like this yeah. change uh, is set in motion by the research, or that people actually influence researchers in this sense? Oh, that's that's a challenging one because I think it's it's probably a dynamic that yeah, has exactly. been influenced by both. And I'm I think it's it's really challenging to pinpoint. Oh, it's really the pressure from consumers or advocacy groups yeah. versus well, the, the scientists who, who show this more often. Mm -hmm. uh, but I guess indeed it's an interplay. And I think you, you focus on something really interesting because I guess, you know, mental health, uh, like 20 years ago, there wasn't, I think, too much attention for how nutrition, for example, would influence mental health. And now there's more and more insights in what function specific nutrients have and why they potentially would affect mental health. Mm -hmm. And I think that is indeed one of those one of those fields where we gain increasing insights in it. And like you said, people become more active or hopefully they become more active. I guess that we see some differences between socioeconomic groups, unfortunately, in that. But yeah. especially those in higher socioeconomic groups. Um, previously, we used to see nutrition research very often that they would eat more healthy, for example, or they would 
they would be more healthy and we link that to healthier eating. But then sometimes yeah. people forgot to focus on, okay, but to what extent are these people moving more or exercising more or drink less alcohol, um, uh, smoke less? And all these confounders have, I think, um, especially in, in the 60s and 70s, maybe blurred a little bit of our vision. And of course, there has been done great research. But looking at how we do research now, we really try to make sure we correct for those variables. So that means yeah. we find small effects of nutrition. But if you look at the whole perspective, if you look at lifestyle as a whole, you can see really, really differences um, when, when you look at healthy eating versus, well, less healthy lifestyles. Yeah. So in that sense, the, the research or the field of research of nutrition has been improving then, I would say. Yeah, right? yeah, definitely. But I guess that goes for all fields yeah, for of research, all, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, we, yeah. we build on each other's knowledge and we couldn't have gotten at this at the point where we are now. Um, yeah. when, without, when those, the, without those definitions definitely, in the 1940s. Definitely. <laughs> you know, we, we know, and that's one of the most beautiful examples, I think, in nutrition is that we know a lot about vitamin C. And that's partially due to the fact that people suffered from scurvy when they were out on ships for, for months, for even years, traveling overseas. You know, yeah. that's, that's one of the reasons why we learned so much about, about vitamin C. And that's, of course, you know, you would think right now, well, it's not ethical to, to let people, people suffer from that. And of course, that has <laughs> never been the intention, right? No, no, no. But yeah. it was a side effect of, of the, the work that people did and, and go, traveling overseas. And people noted that down. And that has helped us to understand, okay, what has been going on? What was missing from their diet? And that's that's so awesome that we can build on on all those years of knowledge. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> that's actually very funny. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, uh, on the matter of, of the legislation, because um, you, you said that you kind of tie the nutrition to, to law, um, yeah. don't you think that these tighter legislations or at least um, the tighter uh, health claims um, hinders kind of this this healthy food revolution, which has been kind of booming, uh, I would say for like five, 10 years, maybe longer already, mm -hmm. uh, and therefore kind of works counterproductive for consumers um, as well as investors maybe on European markets, because I think you focus on uh, Europe, yeah. right? Yeah, I mainly focus on Europe. And indeed, I very often look at uh, other jurisdictions from my European perspective. Um, well, it's, it's an interesting thing here because you have to realize that with this legislation, you try to balance protecting consumers um, with harmonizing legislation throughout the EU and stimulating innovation in the EU. So on mm -hmm. one hand, it's, it's protecting those consumers. On the other hand, it's innovation. And actually, you want to try and achieve both at the same time. And where the tighter legislation may actually help innovation in a sense that everyone knows what to do and everyone knows what they need to uh, identify about their health products before they're able to make a claim, that can actually provide quite some, some clarity for those producers. So that may actually serve as an incentive to do that research and to make sure you gather all the knowledge. But at the same time, these, these procedures that have been in place to protect consumers from false and misleading claims, they are very rigorous procedures and they take well, probably three to four years at this moment from uh, finalizing your research, writing up your uh, scientific dossier that you submit with your authorization request. And then it takes a, well, it takes a few years of those three to four years um, to get it authorized. 
and to get it completely reviewed. So it takes a lot of time and takes mm -hmm. a lot of time from conducting the research, having the idea, conducting the research, and then finally having your, your claim authorized. So that may actually be a negative effect on innovation. So that's a challenging situation. But I do think that we, we shouldn't underestimate the importance of making sure that information that is shared is actually true and is valid information. So as an investor, you may want to promise golden mountains, but if you can't, if you can't live up to these claims, you shouldn't make them. No, exactly. But I think, I mean, that's, that's I agree with you, but I feel like a lot of investors might not, uh, might oh, yeah. not agree with that. Like, I, can, I can imagine. And yeah, definitely. And I can imagine, especially if you look at this, this regulation that I mainly studied in my PhD is, is the nutrition and health claim regulation. So really mm -hmm. focusing on those, on those claims and on those statements. And what we saw there was that in, it took six years from the law to, be there to the first claims to be authorized and in that same time people could still use their old claims but at after six years people were notified about scientific dossiers that they had submitted four years before that about whether these claims would be allowed yes or no and then so many claims were suddenly uh, not authorized they were not allowed on the market anymore and everyone was like oh what's happening and why is this happening and people didn't see, didn't understand the full process because it was quite a black box. And that yeah. causes even more confusion and even more uncertainty for innovation. And I think that's actually a very negative effect. But if so you then have the, very oh, go clear, ahead, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, if you have very clear standards and everyone knows what to do and how to do it, it well, you know, then you can just do the work and make sure that you indeed support your, your claims with scientific evidence. Exactly. I mean, uh, on the one hand, I think it's actually good, right, that you have these legislations because um, well, investors are searching for stable markets. Yeah. They want to know what they're up to. And if you actually have legislations in place, they also have something to kind of get back to the state, right? It's exactly. not like a state can say to you like, hey, um, we have these legislations, but you cannot put this product no. in the market. No. So that's 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 very good. Um, on the sense, like um, for Europe, at least, because I think Europe has, has pretty strict regulations, yeah. right? Like compared to the world. Do you think that it's like uh, Europe setting these normative um, values and normative legislations that this is kind of gives them a head, head start for uh, in comparison to other uh, regions of mm -hmm. the world? Like are they they have to follow Europe, no? Well, in some cases they do, in some cases they don't. Um, I guess if you look at, for example, these different health claims on the market, uh, you can see that in the US you can, you can promise way more with less scientific yeah. evidence. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's one of these things where we as nutrition scientists some, so, sometimes also look at and think, oh, wow, that's a harsh statement, you know? Is there yeah. really evidence for that? And then maybe there is a mechanism of action that people have identified, but you, you're just not sure whether it works like that in humans. So in a sense, indeed, these, these, this train of thought of how to, how to support claims has indeed been, been developed, I guess, a bit more into detail in, in the EU. But at the same time, it, the European system also um, is complex for those uh, cultures that deal with a lot of traditional products so that, yeah. that have a lot of traditional knowledge about herbs about botanicals um, about plants products and plant extracts that are used in nutrition or as supplements so that 
that is a challenging thing. And we also see that that is something that in Europe has not been solved. It's a debate on whether traditional evidence, traditional data can be used as, as evidence in a yeah. similar way as scientific evidence. But that's actually a very difficult, difficult debate. So on one hand, I think quite some jurisdictions look at Europe and try to copy it or say, OK, we're inspired by that system and we take a similar approach. Mm -hmm. But that's only possible if you don't have a, have a very traditional system in place. So we, we see that it's also a lot of work that is ongoing in the Codex Elementarius Committee, um, where discussions take place, international discussions take place about okay, how to deal with it. You know, there since 1991, I think there was the first legislation um, in Japan, actually, on how to deal with claims on functional foods, because Japan is very well known for their uh, for their work in uh, in functional foods. And, and functional food being then functional yeah. food being then like these natural or like traditional uh, no uh, not necessarily or? actually products that you that you try to improve based on their normal nutritional content so a functional food okay. is anything where i would for example um put extra fibers in or where i would try to reduce the amount of fats in so by modification is, yeah, then or yeah okay, very often enough. modification and there's quite a discussion on what the term functional food should include we now see that a lot of foods that have natural properties natural effects on health also are considered functional because they have a function so in a sense mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense yeah. but it's a bit of a challenging discussion but you could see that at the moment that that people started to invest in optimizing nutrition legislation followed on that so it hasn't been started by europe because europe was actually quite late uh, only 15 years after the first development in japan and the us had developed legislation already but now with the european system in place we see that it affects a lot of developments on legislation worldwide um, for nutrition and health claims definitely yeah well for your field then and for your research i, th I think that's a good good thing at least you have something yeah. to research then yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, to kind of move away from from the, the your topic of your phd mm -hmm. um, i was also very interested in the the format of your your dissertation as um uh, someone who's studied mostly in social sciences um i was kind of surprised by it because mm -hmm. um it struck me more like the dissertation, like a bundle of individual articles um, uh, uh, instead of one grand manuscript, um, mm -hmm. which you, you uh, uh, often have in the social sciences. Is this something common in health sciences or is this something for nutritionists only? Or no, that's Yeah, that's actually an interesting one because uh, this is quite common in um, natural sciences, I would say. So I'm just being ignorant then. No, yeah, no, 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 because this is, this is in the Netherlands quite common for natural sciences. Okay. Because we see quite a big difference between how different countries approach that development of a PhD. So my PhD is what you would call a PhD by publication. So I started off with a plan to... I had, a, I had a, a red line that was about the topic that I was interested in, that I wanted to compare nutrition and uh, medicine. I wanted to compare health effects. I wanted to uh, compare adverse effects um, and its legislation. So that was my main red line. And we developed a few research questions that I would study in depth and that I would study separately. And what you do in natural sciences very often is that if you answer one of these research questions, you, you use the me specific methodology for that, 
you write it up as a publication and you try to publish that already in your PhD. Or at least that's how we do it often in, in um, natural sciences and in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you're done with that, you submit it for publication, you get peer reviews back, um, and it's, it's actually published already. So one of the downsides is that you can't update that anymore, of course, once it's going to be... It's gone, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a chapter <laughs> in your PhD, and it, it's set in stone at that moment. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the idea, that you publish all these, all these different answers to research questions already separately, and... Once you say, okay, I, I now am finished with answering these different research questions and I have, well, depending on the topic and depending on the field you're in, four to six uh, chapters that have been written, mm -hmm. then, I'm, then I'm going to describe the red line through them. And that's what you do in your introduction and your discussion of your PhD thesis. You won't publish them separately, but you really use those introduction and discussion to tie them together. So, yeah, it's really all those separate chapters, like chapter two until, well, whatever chapter you have before your discussion, you would actually want to publish them separately. I think it's very interesting, right? Because then you already have, well, if you finish your PhD, you already have like these yeah. five or six articles which are published. Like yeah. you, you know about the whole procedure of publishing articles exactly. um, and, and what have you. So I think... Uh, in that actually, sense, it's... Yeah, it's, it's actually quite interesting because you now mentioned you probably have them published. Well, what we see, there are no hard numbers on how many publication, how many of your chapters should actually be published because it can be a very lengthy process as well, of course. Yeah. One of my papers in my PhD took me, I think, 19 months from submission to publication, to accepting for publication, and then it takes half a year before it is actually published. Mm -hmm. So... You don't need to have them all already published, but it okay. does also help you in trying to identify, okay, what is now my next research question that I'm working on? So it, yeah, it's a bit of a... Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, right? Because I feel like you got, like then you're just ticking off like the boxes of like, you have like five research questions and you're like, okay, like I have five ideas for papers or whatever you, which have kind of the same, uh, same topic or are related to each other. And you just... Because how long did you spend on your PhD? Yeah, I had like, a very quick um, okay. PhD. I had, a, I had two and a half years. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So then you just spent like two and a half years on writing these five, yeah. six papers, uh, which is funny. I mean, I think it's, it's actually it's very quite, good. Yeah, and it, but it's quite a different approach, of course. But like I said, this is the Netherlands. I know, for example, yeah. that in Norway and in the UK and in quite some other countries, even if you're in natural sciences, you you uh, really gather all the data first and you need to integrate maybe different methods that you've used uh, to study different elements of your research question, of your bigger research question. You need to combine them into one method section and you really make one book out of that. Um, I see. So that really depends also on, on what is normal and what is the norm, I guess, in your, in your institution. Yeah. It was also was... quite funny for, yeah. my, for my law professor because she was not used to that either because she was used to writing one monograph. And after yeah. that, you try to publish that as a whole. Um, mm -hmm. And that's quite a different approach, of course. Yeah, I would say that's very different. <laughs> yeah. um, to follow up on that, um, I noticed that um, a lot of these articles that were, they were also like co-authored by like, um, I think two or three other people. Yeah. Um, are they like um, people that are just involved in your, your PhD or are they doing the same PhD track at the same time as you or how? 
Um, how did you find these these co-authors? Yeah, it, it differed a little bit. Uh, you see one co-author popping up all the time, and that was one of my promoters. Okay. Um, and that in natural sciences, it, it's quite normal to have your uh, to have your supervisors as co-authors of your papers. So if you want to have like a good um, good rating on like ResearchGate or what have you, you just become promoter in the health sciences, I would say. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> well, very harsh. That sounds very th Then well, you've got a lot of articles, huh? Well, yeah. and of course, it's, well, there is, a, there is a kind of tactic behind it as well, because you can always see in the natural sciences who was the, the, the person who wrote the paper should be first author, and the yeah. person who supervised the whole team or has has developed the the full idea for the project should be last author. Okay, so enough. those are important points. But you can see, for example, in one of my publications that there is a second author who is only popping up for one paper. He he was actually a student who uh, helped me with a literature review. So it was his bachelor thesis where he worked and reviewed, I think, like 800, 900 papers together with me and so he he deserves at that moment because of his critical perspective on things and our discussions and our weekly meetings he then deserves a co-authorship so yeah in in natural sciences i would say in health sciences especially it's quite normal that if you contribute something to a paper to the process of of research you're you're you deserve your authorship in that sense no, I think that's actually that's I think that's actually super nice. You know that it's uh, yeah, but it's of... it's an interesting distinction because because for example, my law professor uh, has co-authored one of my publications, but she's acknowledged in another publication because she also said, you know, I wasn't involved in the data gathering process. You've gathered mm -hmm. the data yourself, and of course, we had critical discussions about how to interpret the data, uh, what method to use, and why this method, and why not others, and what now the results would mean but she says it's your paper so i i don't think i need to be an author in that and there you could actually see i think the difference in in how it is normally organized in law versus in my case in toxicology mm -hmm. that, was, yeah, I mean, that was quite interesting to see for you i would say it's, it's beneficial no because you've kind of seen both worlds then in, in, yeah, in a sense and definitely. can can work from both perspectives yeah I enjoyed it a lot and I, I learned also a lot about the whole well the whole publication process the whole supervision process the whole perspective on how like uh, this sounds very broad but how academia works in law versus how academia works in health sciences and that was yeah. really nice to see definitely exactly um to for a last question to go back to your, your topic or at least to the health sciences um uh, I think I mentioned already that like the last five to 10 years, you kind of have this whole well, um, health revolution. Maybe mm. I don't know if you can call it like that. Um, do you think that, like, do you notice in your field that there is um, more attention for the research in it? And is there the funding for your discipline? Has it, um, uh, uh, has it like increased, uh, uh, at least in the Netherlands? I was, um, I think you can um, maybe say a bit on that. Yeah. Funding is always a difficult one because I, I'm, I'm afraid funding has not uh, matched increased? up with the no uh, no probably not I do see that um, I I undertake quite a lot of activities to to explain our research findings outside of academia and I do see that there's quite a lot of interest there and that yeah. a lot of people are getting more aware of the fact that things are regulated and a lot of people become more aware of that they need that they need evidence and, and that they're become increasingly interested in how to gather it. So we do have 
thankfully some some very uh, nice collaborations, especially through uh, funding schemes that are public-private partnerships, where you collaborate with uh, different industrial organizations, but also with other knowledge institutions to to actually do a, a very big research project. And we can see that there's some funding from there, but in nutrition, there are quite a lot of uh, small-scale uh, organizations who work in that, uh, small-scale industry. So there's not a lot of funds available for research. And for these companies like, um, well, maybe it's a cliche, but like these large companies like Unilever or, or uh, Nestle or something, are they actually involved in, in um, well, fostering research or do they just simply have their own research institutes? Uh, both, I would say. They definitely have their own research institutes, but they also work for the more fundamental questions. They collaborate a lot with, with uh, universities and very okay. often in these uh, pre-competitive public-private partnerships. So that also is, I think, a very nice way to collaborate because then you're, you're, you're not working with only one industrial, but you're working with a group of industry, um, industry uh, representatives who all have a common interest. For example, if you would study the effects of protein on, on elderly, you could set up a collaboration with different food businesses that, that all want to know a little bit more about that. And probably they make very different end products for that, but they all benefit from that increased knowledge. Yeah. And so that's a very nice construction, I would say. No, yeah, I, I yeah. agree. So then you've got this collective knowledge yeah. that's used in different purposes. Definitely, definitely. So that's very nice. And then very often in the Netherlands, you collaborate with both universities of applied sciences and universities. So there's not just fundamental knowledge production, but also a bit more applied already. And well, yeah, we know that students benefit from that in the end as well. And that's very nice to see. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I think there's a good answer on, on my question. Um, uh, to tie up the, the interview, um, I always ask people um, which memory of their PhD adventure um, they cherish the most or they they uh, well, have the best memories of. Um, well, it's the same question for you. Do you have any any memory that's, that strikes out or that's, that really um, well, um, stayed with you? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, I could tell about my defense. I could probably tell about the moment that you receive these books that, you know, <laughs> That's such a special moment that, that you receive those. Well, I had 200 copies of your own book where you made your own cover for it. That's such an exciting moment. Yeah, uh, I can actually, see that. Yeah, but I actually wanted to share one moment that was actually taking place at the start of my PhD when I got the opportunity to organize a, a symposium for, mm -hmm. I think, about 100 people, um, ranging from academics to people in the industry, but also consumer organizations to share the first findings uh, of my work, but especially to discuss about the use of nutrition and health claims on foods. And it was such an interesting afternoon and it was such a pleasure to share also what I learned already in, in my research. And I was so excited to be able to tell that to people and to try and make the, the knowledge that I had gathered, try to make that accessible to others. And that's yeah. one of the things that has driven me a lot over the last few years as well. And I think maybe that symposium was actually maybe probably the starting point looking back right now for that excitement, because I noticed that, you know, you don't just do research for the sake of doing research, for being findable in Google Scholar or whatever. No, yeah. you just produce knowledge that other people can use in the end. So I'm, I don't need to do the application, but that others can use it for application. That's awesome. 
yeah, no, exactly. That, yeah. that was probably the moment that where it started. I think that's very nice, actually. And maybe it's also like something for people that want to pursue a PhD is that maybe you should not have you you, you don't have to wait till the, the very end of your PhD to publish your manuscript. No, but in no, between, you can also share information in yes. more more conventional ways yes, than than what have you publishing articles. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a very good uh, very good ending uh, point. Um, thank you so much, uh, Ally, for for the interview. I really enjoyed it, actually. Uh, thank you. I think it was, it was very interesting, and you had a very genuine insights. I would say. Thank um, you very much for for having me. It was a pleasure to uh, to work on your podcast. Such kind words uh, seem to be a perfect end to the episode. Uh, as I already said, uh, I really enjoyed listening to Ally her contributions on health claims, as it is something I encounter every day, really. But I do not actively think about. Um, I suppose this is the same for you guys, and perhaps you might have a closer look in the future when buying products that claim to be healthy. Um, you can find Ellie her further contributions in the podcast's description, and uh, stay tuned for the next episode.